All right. Well, if you guys have your Bibles, or if you don't, there's Bibles up here. We're turning to 1 Peter chapter 5. This is the last week that we're spending in 1 Peter. So we're going through the entire chapter 5 today. A little thumbs up when you guys are there. Be nice. The last one. The final chapter. Final countdown. All right. I'm going to go ahead and read this entire chapter. Um, If you can only pay close attention for a few verses, pay attention to verses 6 through 11. But I'll read the whole thing and then we'll pray. It says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written, written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word tonight, just pray that we would have ears to hear, Lord, that, that you would speak through me and that we would ultimately know your heart better after tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I asked, I would hope the majority of you, who was the first European to sail to the Americas? Who was the first person to find North America? Christopher Columbus. There we go, right? Everyone knows Chris Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, right? But what if, what if I challenged that and told you that actually... 500 years before Christopher Columbus even sailed there, a Viking by the name of Leif Erikson sailed to North America. (laughs) You can say that, but it's the facts. All right, so this guy, Leif Erikson, he's actually the son of a great explorer named Eric the Red, right? That's, That's what the Vikings did. They named their children, their name, and then plus son. So Leif Erikson actually, with his father, went to Greenland, which his father, Eric the Red, discovered and named Greenland. And Leif Erikson 
sailed into the unknown, and eventually landed in a place that he called Vinland, which is in Canada. So he was actually the first to officially land in North America. And this is what he is famously known for. If you read up on uh, in, in like the Norse legends, they, they praise this guy. They, they go hard with Life Erikson. They, they talk about where he landed. But no one ever talks about the journey that he went on, the voyage that he undertook. No one ever praises Chris Columbus for, for the, the voyage he went on, just, just where he ended up. But the fact is that for most of these guys, and for Life Erickson at least, he didn't have any maps. He was going into the unknown. There was rough winds that could steer his ship into a dangerous path. There was icebergs so deep that they could destroy his ship. There was lack of food. There was illnesses. There was all these things on this voyage. But yet, once he stepped foot onto those shores, that's what gets all the attention. And so we actually see that it is the case for every arrival to some sort of paradise, you find a rigorous voyage preceding it. And the difficult reality for everyone here, if you're sitting in one of these chairs, and myself included, is that we are not home yet. We are on a voyage. We haven't arrived to our true home. This is our expedition, our journey to heaven. Or as Peter puts it, and as he has put it, This is the time of our exile. So Peter ends his letter with a final exhortation, final exhortation to his readers, kind of showing this is everything that I've told you how to live during your exile. And to conclude, live in this way. And so he first starts by exhorting the elders. And this is a great passage, and I'll encourage you to go back and read it. But for our time tonight, we're not going to focus on that part, but, but it's really good. He talks about the, the church leaders, the shepherds of the flock, how they are to conduct themselves among their, uh, their flock, right? They're, they're supposed to be examples, not domineering, but, but be examples of Christ. But for our time tonight, I want to focus on verses 6 through 11. And Peter, through these few verses, is telling us that we must stand firm during our exile, that we may see the completeness of our restoration. We must stand firm during our exile, during our voyage, during this journey, during the the time of of our in-between, not yet home, but, but almost there, in order that we may see the completeness of our restoration. And so Peter tells us three things that we kind of have to do during our exile. He gives us three Bs. Tells us to be humble, be aware, and be resistant. So if you want to write those down, we're going to expand on those later. Be humble, be aware, and be resistant. And the first of those is to be humble. So if you will look with me at verse 6, he writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. And just before this, in verse 5, we kind of get this image of him talking to how these Christians should conduct themselves with each other, and he tells them to be humble towards one another because uh, um, God, he says, uh, uh, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And now he kind of pivots a little bit. And he says, 
And as far as the way you conduct yourself to the Lord, be humble. Conduct yourself with humility. And we see this image of of the hand of God in verse 6, right? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And this is important to kind of figure out what this hand of God is. And in short, it's an image used all the time in the Bible to kind of display God's strength. Even in the Old Testament, especially when he was delivering the Israelites from Egypt, right? When people were complaining about what they were eating and and Moses goes and intercedes for the people and, and he starts kind of questioning God a little bit. God says, has my hand been shortened? No. His strength is always in full effect. So we get this image of God's hand, God's strength. And this shows us that God's strength is where our humility begins. Because if you are in the presence of something as mighty as the Lord, right? How can you not be humbled? And in verse seven, he continues saying, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This image of casting uh, is purposefully said this in such a way that um, you think of casting a, a net, right? For fishing, a, a weighted net. That's how they kind of did it. They threw a net with weights on it and it caught fish. So he's saying, cast your weighted net of all your anxieties and your worries to the Lord. And why? Because he cares for us. And I, I cannot emphasize this enough that we may do this because Christ cares for us. I know sometimes uh, it, it is good to kind of be aware of, of a mushy-gushy gospel, um, and that's, that's good. But I think sometimes we can actually become so cold that we forget just how unique it is that our God does care for us, that our God does love us. And this isn't some overly therapeutic twist on a sovereign God. It is simply the truth, the sweet truth of Christ in us. And the interesting thing about this is that if your version of the Bible starts off verse 7 with a new sentence, um, I would encourage you to kind of disregard that, that new sentence beginning. Right? In the original Greek, this is one long sentence. And so he's saying, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's connected. And what we see is that casting all of your anxieties onto God is actually the instrument for attaining humility. How do we become humble? By casting our anxieties onto God. How is this the method for becoming humble, though? Because you are affirming your weakness and God's strength by trusting him with X, Y, and Z. With all of your worry, with all of your um, doubts, or, or, or with all of your anxieties, when you give those to God, when you trust in him as a good God who uses all things for the good of his saints, you are affirming your weakness and his strength and therefore humbling yourself. And the inverse of this, we actually see can result in a form of pride. How does worry 
right? If, if, that's the, if that's the opposite of casting your anxieties to the Lord, if, if worrying yourself is the opposite of that, how does that lead to pride? Well, Tom Schreiner makes a good point when he says that the people who are constantly worrying, they're constantly worrying about everything. They're always anxious about what tomorrow may hold. The only God that they trust in is themselves. So it's a form of pride to worry because you assume that you have to change everything. But in reality, you are to humble yourself and cast those anxieties to the Lord. We see a wonderful example of what humility looks like in actually three of the four gospel accounts. We are shown the true story of a leper who approaches Christ. And I'll read really quickly from Matthew chapter 8. It says, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. He knelt before him. He said, Lord, I know that you can because you are great and I am weak and and I am lowly and I'm not able to do anything on my own. And I know that you are a powerful God and I affirm your Godship. And if it is in your good will, your perfect will, I am asking that you would make me clean. And our God's response is, I will be clean. This is how we are to approach our God. This is how we are to approach Christ, out of humility, understanding our own weakness, our need for him. And when we approach him in this way, when you approach God in such a way that you you know you are weak, you will be met with boundless grace every time. Because humility doesn't seek things of the world. Humility acknowledges your own depravity. This is why Paul says that he can boast in his weakness. Right? When he has the thorn in his side, this is why he pleads God three times. Don't get me wrong. He pleads for him. Or he pleads for himself to remove this thorn from his side. The Lord says no. And yet, Paul says that he can boast in his weakness, trusting in the goodwill of God, even though he has this thorn in his flesh. And Psalm 28, 7 says that the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him and I am helped. So we see how in verse Six, when he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you because before that, God God gives grace to the humble. When you approach the Lord in humility, he exalts you. You are weak and he is strong, but the good news is that he lends you his strength and he exalts you. And this is speaking of salvation. I think it's pretty clear because this entire letter of 1 Peter is talking about exiles and and talking about their time of salvation. 
And so the good news in that is that when you approach the Lord humbly and you rely on his strength, he is faithful to exalt you. So let God's strength reveal your weakness and so conduct yourself humbly before not only a sovereign God, but a loving Father. In your humility, cast to him your worries, knowing that nothing can thwart his sovereign rule. So this is the first thing that we must do. Be humble. And then he kind of pivots in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The second thing we must do is be aware. If I could summarize that into two words, be aware. Be sober-minded, watchful, gird up the loins of your mind, stay alert, right? We, we talked about this. Peter talks in a similar way in uh, chapter 1, verse 13. This is consistent with the things that he's been saying. He's just kind of concluding it now. Make sure that your mind is always attentive. Make sure that you're aware because he gives a perfect illustration of what we face. A dangerous, hungry lion roaming around seeking someone to devour. And so, for those who are not aware, it's like you're in the jungle, right? And you're just kind of sitting around and you're not paying too much attention. You've been told that there's a lion, but the second you hear an aggressive purring sound behind you, you just assume it's a house cat. And that doesn't make any sense at all. He's saying you have to be aware. If you're told that there's a lion and you hear a purring sound behind you, you're going to jump on that thing in like fighting form, like get ready to go, right? Because you've been told that there's an aggressive, hungry lion ready to devour. So you must be watchful. But don't get so carried away with this idea. People can keep going down this path and just assume that there's a demon behind every bush. But being aware does not mean to be paranoid. Because when Christ uttered those words, it is finished, they were final. It is not an arm wrestle between God and the devil for your soul. It's, it's not some sort of chess match with the one with the best intellect. And it's not even like, a swimming match between, between someone with no limbs and, and a Michael Phelps God, right? It's none of those things. It's not a competition. John, or 1 John 4, 4 says that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we are told to be watchful of the enemy, but you are never told to fear him. Fear only God and trust in his work. Because it is final and it has been accomplished. I think oftentimes, based on perhaps culture or whatever it is, we, we have this idea of what, what does spiritual evil look like? And for me, the first thing that kind of pops into my head is when you watch a scary movie and there's like some sort of spiritual enemy like like. The main threat is, is a demon or something like that. Well, what happens? It's usually nighttime. It's kind of like the lights are kind of off and the person's home alone maybe. And they're kind of walking around because they hear a sound. And then out of nowhere, something just snatches them up. 
But that is not how the devil works, or at least that's not the most effective way that he works. Peter says to be watchful. In your daily routine, be watchful, be aware. When you least expect it, be aware because that lion is prowling. He's prowling when someone maybe says something that maybe you weren't supposed to hear. And so it kind of triggers a, 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 a dissension into um, uh, this, this urge to gossip. He's prowling when maybe you get a text message that can be interpreted one of two ways, a good way or a bad way, depending on which way you are kind of leaning. He, he's prowling, perhaps at, at a time unexpected, when you might even see an advertisement. And the person might be dressed in such a way that it, it, it tempts your sinful heart. And in all of these ways, the devil is prowling. And so it is important to always keep your eyes open and be aware. But I would say the most effective way that the devil can attack is through his role as an accuser. He's called the great accuser. And what does this mean? It means when you are stuck in a sin or you have just sinned, it's that the accusation that comes from Satan that says, maybe you're not a Christian. If you are continuing this, like, like maybe you're not really in Christ. I know you've felt that grace before, but, but from the way you're living, I don't know if I'm super confident in my faith anymore. And so this is when we must use discernment and our awareness to, to discern between the devil's accusations and the Holy Spirit's convictions. Because it can be really easy to twist those things. The, the only difference is the devil is twisting conviction to become an accusation. So when you go through a sin, they're both pointing at the same sin in your life. And the only difference is, is the accusation is pointing you to despair and the convictions of the Holy Spirit is pointing you to forgiveness. No, you're not a Christian versus, yeah, Christ covered that. You see the difference? So this is what requires awareness. And it is why we must be resistant, which is the final B. Be resistant. Look at verse 9. He continues from talking about this roaring lion. And what is his response? He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. How do we respond when this malicious lion gets too close? Do we just kind of kick back and let him have a meal? No, it says resist. Resist, firm in your faith. And so some people take this to mean, and it very well could mean, that you just are kind of like playing your feet and like you're like, constantly pushing back against this devil and, and you're being steadfast in your faith. And, and I think that that could very well be it, but I really take a liking to the way 
that R.C. Sproul explained this verse, or more specifically, this idea of being firm in your faith, he says that, that it's consistent to, to describe what Peter is saying here as rooting yourself in doctrine, as planting your feet deep in the soil of doctrine. Whichever way you kind of see it, it's nonetheless implying that confidence in Christ will quickly deconstruct any of the enemy's attacks. Listen, if Satan is the great accuser, then God's word is our best defense attorney. This shows the importance of doctrine. And if, if you were on the, the camp retreat, Blake touched on this too, the importance of doctrine. It's important because it helps you discern between a true gospel and a false gospel. And here, doctrine is important because it turns out that all you have to do to quickly deconstruct any of the enemy's attacks is know the truth, is speak the truth. I was trying to remember a a line from the show Daredevil when he takes on a client, and because he's a, a lawyer, he takes on a client and she's innocent. He knows she's innocent. And he's very confident that they'll win this. And she says, why are you so confident that we'll win this case? And he said, well, winning a case with an innocent person is easy. All you have to do is tell the truth. And that is the case with us and the enemy. And this is exactly what Christ did in the desert when he went through the harshest temptation that anyone has ever experienced or anyone would ever experience for 40 days. He's being tempted by the devil. And what was the devil doing? Twisting God's word. Maybe taking something that that is initially good and twisting it in such a way out of his wittiness that would be harmful. He says, well, if if you are God, then then do this. He says, well, God's word says this. But what is Jesus' response? Now it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He goes up to him and, and he rebukes him. I rebuke you, Satan. He, he sends him off. He's, he's saying, you really think that, that, that you would catch me off guard? You really think that I would be tempted for 40 days in the desert and not be rooted in my father's word? You really think that I wouldn't be planted in the truth that has built me up to this day? You think you could so easily deconstruct that? If you plant your feet deep into doctrine, you will find that resisting the enemy, especially as the great accuser, will come easier. And he goes on to say with an encouragement, in a sense, that, that knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. By, by Christians throughout the world. Listen, you are not being uniquely focused. When, when I said that Jesus cares for you like no other, you can cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you like no other. This includes the devil. Does not have a pers- the same personal relationship with you that Christ does. For all we know, you're a number, right? And, and, and you're not the only one under attack. And I, I, I know that this is 
my last message, and we almost got all the way through it without an illustration like this, but I, I want us to picture that final scene in Avengers Endgame <laughs> when Captain America is kind of beaten up and he's got his shield torn in half, right? He's, sees, right? He, sees, <laughs> he sees Thanos, and Thanos is like warmed up now, right? He's like ready for round two. Plus, he's got an army behind him, and, and Captain America's just like looking up, and because he's a beast, he stands up like ready to fight, but it, it's hopeless, right? But what happens next? Who, who says, someone say the words. On your left? No one? Yeah, yeah. He hears on your left. And a portal opens up. And then another portal. And another portal. And all of a sudden, Falcon's flying out. The Guardians of the Galaxy show up. Spider-Man, Spider-Man swings in. <laughs> the worst Spider-Man swings I in. Oh no. That was a cool scene. That was cool too, but, but yeah, but yeah. that scene's cool too. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but they all show up, right? And all of a sudden, there's hope again. And so when when you when you're it feels like you're being focused by the enemy. It feels like you're being targeted. It turns out that one of the best ways that we can resist the devil is by being immersed in community. I mean, do not underestimate the power of confessing to one another, encouraging one another, and loving one another. I mean, if I can be honest with you, this is why church is so important. Because it brings up these, these two necessities to combat the devil. Rooting yourself in doctrine, learning, being taught weekly, and being surrounded by God's people. Those are your two greatest weapons in your arsenal. Because we know that resisting the enemy is a matter of spiritual warfare. It's not fought in the flesh. And so, you ought to be resistant by knowing God's word and God's people. Because they are undergoing the same suffering that you are. So, we are told to be humble, be aware, and be resistant. And to do this because, look down with me at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the promise. This is why Peter is calling you to be so diligent in your time of exile. Look at the way he says it. After you have suffered for a little while, what, a, what, what, what better way could you possibly describe your lifetime compared to eternity with Christ? After you suffer for just a little while, what comes next? Restoration, confirmation, strengthening, establishment, completeness with Christ. I love this little book 
Valley of Vision. Um, you've probably seen Aaron read it or something. It's full of these Puritan prayers. And one of my favorites is titled Voyage. You can see where I got the kind of idea for the theme here. But in this prayer, this Puritan talks about how his life is a voyage and his destination is heaven. And I just want to read a few lines, kind of skipping through a little bit. He says, O Lord of the oceans, my little bark sails on a restless sea. Grant that Jesus may sit at the helm and steer me safely. The voyage is long, the waves high, the storms pitiless, but my helm is held steady. Thy word secures safe passage. Thy grace wafts me onward. My haven is guaranteed. This day will bring me near home. He concludes saying, let my mass before me be the Savior's cross and every oncoming wave, the fountain in his side. Help me, protect me in the moving sea until I reach the shore of unceasing praise. And that is the destination. Sinners washing up on golden shores. Christ who cares so deeply, wiping away our tears. And I promise you that, that it, there is no doubt, and the Bible confirms that the time of exile, our, our lifetime, is tough and it feels long now. But when you arrive at your true home, you will not even notice it. You're, you will be overjoyed in the presence of your king. Just as a mother is overjoyed holding her newborn infant after the pain of labor. That is the, destino- the destination. This is the voyage. So, hold fast to the word of God. Humble yourselves under his strong hand. Be aware of the prowling enemy and resist him with confidence in Christ steadfastly until you wash up on the shores of your true home. Let's pray. Father, we, we acknowledge that, that this time sometimes seems too difficult, sometimes seems unbearable, Lord, but Lord, I pray that we would trust you, that we would humble ourselves by giving all these worries to you, that we would trust that, that as you, as our guide, we would make it safely home. So Lord, for this time here in our exile, would you give us the strength to be diligent, to be wise, to be discerning, to be loving, to have courage and to be encouraged. And Lord, I pray that we would stand firm in our faith so that we may see the completeness of our restored selves with you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.